0: Welcome to the Running Explained Podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is run coach Claire Bartholik. She's been a guest on this podcast before, uh, in season one, talking about how to become faster as a master and breaking three hours in the marathon after she turned 40. But this week, Claire is back to share her decades-long knowledge of the sport of running and a conversation about running lingo, running slang, running the vocabulary that runners use that may not be something that you would know if you're not a runner and all the different ways that we may use words in the context of running and training that are not how they're applied in the non-running world. So I know for me, when I first started running, one of the things that I realized pretty quickly is that I had to learn a whole bunch of new language, a new vocabulary, a new way of talking, what things meant, what certain abbreviations were. Now, of course, I feel like like second nature to me, but of course, there's always more to learn. And one of the really fun things is that this is the, you've probably heard me talk about this before on the podcast, is that depending on who you're talking to, certain things may have different definitions um, just on how people apply them. So specifically when we're talking about workouts or types of runs, each coach may describe one run in a different way. So it's always good to ask, hey, but like, what do you actually mean by that? If you are ex- executing a workout, And you're not 100% sure how it should actually go. You actually may be working off a different definition of the thing compared to what the assigning body has asked you to do. So yes, a little bit frustrating, but the more you know, the better off you will be. And of course, before we get started, just a quick update about some of the things that's going on in Running Explained land. Our coaching team is growing. I'm so excited to have added some wonderful, amazing coaches to the coaching team. So if you're looking for one-on-one run coaching, we do have availability. You can submit your application on the Running Explained website. We also have new group training offerings coming available for this fall. They will be self-paced, coach-supported group training. So more information will be that Registration opening in the beginning of October. I'm really excited to be offering this to you in a way that I feel like is the best way for you to learn and train for your race on your week on your timeline and get all of the education support you need. And this is a great option for people who really aren't ready or interested in one-on-one coaching, but do feel like they need a little bit more than what they're currently getting, uh, which may be nothing. So um, always about that education first. So just that quick update. And now here is the episode.
1: Claire, welcome back to the show. Always exciting to have you. I'm so excited to be here, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. So
0: you had, uh, you were on as a guest with a great episode talking about being a master's runner over 40 and how your fastest days might still be ahead of you, even though you are in the 40 plus range, you being the general runner, but, um, it's been a while since we've had you on. So give us a quick up, a quick update about what's going on with you and what's new.
1: Well, the biggest thing is that I have left the Run to the Top, which is the podcast that I had been on for about two and a half years. Just I really love that show. You know, lots. I got my feet wet in podcasting, interviewed so many amazing people. Um, But I've gone in my own direction with the new podcast, The Planted Runner, and that is going I can't even tell you, Elizabeth, better than I expected. I am so happy with the positive feedback, you know, like this is my baby. And you know, when you put something uh, that is so like your heart and soul out into the world, it's like a little nerve wracking. And I'm just thrilled that it resonates with people and that people are getting value from it. So that is just, I mean, I'm just overjoyed. And uh, the other big news is that my book is finally coming out. That will be out. Um, They tell me early February, might be end of January, but let's say early February. So the Planet Runner, Running Your Best Life um, on Plants is coming out then. And it's basically a collection of everything I talk about and everything I write about in book form. Um, So that is a major, major accomplishment that I'm super excited about. Congratulations.
0: Those, Those are both such exciting pieces of news. And I'm so excited for you.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a whirlwind. And I'm sure you know what that's like. And I'm just, you know, I it's, it's amazing that I am doing exactly what I want to be doing with my life. And I know that's not the situation for everybody. But when you do find something that you can just pour your heart into, and you can make a living out of it. It's just, it's just the best thing in the world. It really is.
0: It really is. And I have to say, I'm a little bit jealous of you that you got to kind of hone your teeth and cut your teeth as it were on somebody else's dime with that podcast. So now your podcast is like, you know, super high production, gorgeous content right out of the gate.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. It, I was absolutely lucky that way. I I got to make all my mistakes. Not that I'm, I'm still making mistakes. Don't get me wrong. But yes, I got to learn um, through somebody else, which which has been great. I'm, I'm I'm super lucky and I just, I couldn't have, I couldn't have scripted this.
0: Well, today we are talking about, um, running lingo, running slang, the running vocabulary that as a new runner, even somebody who's like kind of, you know, pays attention on and off to the sport. When you start running, it kind of feels like people are speaking a different language. And it's very confusing for some people to be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What does that even mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think in any sport or anything you get into, there's going to be some overlap of terms. You know, one person will be talking about one thing and meaning something totally different than what I understand that they're saying. So I think this is going to be a fun episode, just really uh, breaking down what's what so we can just get it all straight for what. Once and for all. <laughs> yes. And hundred percent. Yes. There are some, depending on the coach and there's even
0: some regional differences on some of these terms, mm-hmm. but one, uh, there are, there are situations where I even myself will find myself using three different things to describe one thing, like in my sentence, because I don't want to keep repeating the word. I'm like, well, this, but blah, 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 But like, wait, are those two different things? I'm like, actually they're the same thing. <laughs> right.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So let's start. We're going to go through kind of a a collection of running specific vocab or even some acronyms that you may have come across. But one that really confuses a lot of people, especially who are new to the sport or new to more structured or serious training, is the word workout. Yes. When a coach uses the word workout in the context of your training, a lot of runners think, But every run is technically a workout.
1: Claire, what do we mean when we coaches are saying workout? Well, first of all, if you are running as, you know, fitness and that is your workout, go ahead, use that word as your workout. If you're going for a run and that is your workout for the day, go ahead, it's totally a workout. But when we are scheduling training for you, we're gonna have easy days and we're gonna have speed days or long run days. And we don't call the easy days a workout. Those are recovery runs. Those are, you know, to build your aerobic base. We call workouts um, the speed days that you're going to do. So intervals, tempos, longer, you know, anything with a speed element, that is what's called a workout. So if somebody says to me, how was my workout today? And I look and they ran, you know, five miles easy or whatever. I'm just like, you didn't do a workout today. You just ran easy. (laughs) So yes, I can see how that definitely gets confused sometimes. And a synonym for this is a
0: quality day, a day where you have quality. That's a similar concept
1: yeah i i bristle at the term quality i really don't like it that much i know what people are saying and, it, and it's great if that you if that's what you want to do but i think all runs are quality so if people are saying oh i you know i had a bunch of quality miles and the rest of my miles were junk miles what they're saying is oh i did some workouts and i and the other runs were easy but when you say quality that you know the connotation is these are the good miles and everything else are the bad miles so I don't really love that term, but when people use quality, they mean speed work. So going off
0: that, talking about different kinds of workouts, we mm-hmm. have speed work. You just even named a couple of times, speed, a couple of different kinds of, of things, speed work and something like a tempo or a threshold workout. Um, not all workouts are the same. What's the general difference between something like speed or a tempo or threshold day?
1: Okay. So when my definition of a tempo is an effort that you can only hold for about 30 to 40 minutes, whatever that is. So that might be your 10K pace. That might be your 5K pace. You know, I don't know what your pace is, but it's something that you could certainly not do for an hour. You know, so it's a fairly high effort situation if you're running that long. But if you're running whatever that pace is for five minutes, it's not going to feel that hard. So a tempo pace is whatever you can reasonably run in, you know, 45 minutes, somewhere somewhere in that range. But is it a form of speed? Of course, it's a form of speed. But if somebody's saying, oh, I'm going to do my speed work today, they're not talking about usually going and running a five-mile tempo. What they are talking about is maybe going to the track, maybe doing some intervals, something like that. So that is, that's kind of the distinction there. That's so funny because actually you, this is why it's like always ask your coach what
0: they're talking about. Um, I, I have a different working definition of tempo as in when I'm talking about a tempo run, I'm thinking about something that's slower than your lactate threshold for most people. So Mm -hmm. right around that 45 minute to an hour, all out racing effort for me, if we're doing a tempo run, that's more like marathon or half marathon goal pace or goal effort. So that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. This is again, one of the things like ask your coach, different coaches have different definitions of certain things.
1: Yeah, so so when we attach um, race distances to effort, we always have to factor in the distance to be run, right? So if you're running marathon pace for 200 meters, that's super, super easy, right? So it's not going to be a high effort. But if you're running marathon pace for 25 miles, that's super, super, super hard. That's high effort. So the effort involved is always attached to the distance. So be sure when you are trying to attach race distances to, you know, whatever your workout is, make sure you know the the length of what you're running because that makes all the difference in how you call it. So you know, when I talk about marathon pace, if I'm using a marathon paced workout, I usually call that more of a steady run, but that's also dependent on the distance, right? So if you're running marathon pace for a mile, that's not going to be super challenging, but, you know, make that longer and longer and the effort will always rise. So yeah, be sure you know your definitions before you go out there and, and run it. As an aside, actually, we were just
0: talking about this last night in one of my, um, marathon groups that we have going on right now about, it was a, it was a discussion about lactate thresholds specifically. And I kind of threw this in as an aside, because I think some people don't realize this, but it's very important. Rarely in a workout, would you do a total volume of work greater than the race distance of the pace you're running? Right. So like you would never do eight miles of 10 K pace work in a workout or, you know, maybe, but I mean, I'm sure there's an exception, but I can think of very, very few. That should Um, be
1: technically impossible. Right. right? Like, you know, even
0: if you have, you know, rest or recovery intervals between the reps that you're doing, like if you're running more than the race distance, you know, of the, of the race or effort pace that you're running, like that's an that's an extraordinarily challenging thing to do and a red flag looking at a training plan if your training plan has you running something like that you're
1: like that's that doesn't seem correct right Absolutely. Absolutely. I so su- I suppose when you get really, really short distances, then that might be okay. So let's say you're running two hundred meter, you know, repeats. Obviously you're gonna run more than one of those, you know. So you so when you're really short, yes, but when you get up to the longer distances, there's no way that you can run eight miles at five K pace. That's just silly stuff. Yeah.
0: All right. Related to workouts or runs in general, warm-up and cool down because you can have a pre-run warm up and then also have a part of your run that is also a warm up but you're running
1: <laughs> right right so warm ups um there's a lot to be said about warmups, of course. So if you're going out for just an easy run, do you need a warmup? And maybe, maybe not, but the first mile or so of your run should definitely be super, super easy. And I would say you should still do a warmup anyway, even if you don't think you need one, because it's a great time to squeeze in tons of really good stuff that you're going to forget other times. So you could be doing, um, the lunge matrix. You can be doing leg swings. Some people like to do a little jumping on one foot, or they like to do the grapevine, which is also called karaoke, you know, or whatever it is, little drills that, you know, you don't want to make into a separate session. You can do that sort of thing before any run, you're going to do something different before a speed run, but then versus an easy run. So, some of your warm up really is going to be jogging the first part of whatever your mileage is that day. So, if you're running, let's say you're running a speed where you're going to the track, definitely part of your warm up needs to be some easy running, whether that's 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it takes. For you to get warm you know there is a reason it's called a warm-up you should actually get warm before you try to do more intensive work um you know do you need a warm-up before your easy run you know you're not actually going to be doing intense work so you don't it's not as required but I think it's a good opportunity to sneak some other things in
0: yeah, there's a lot you can cram into your warm up that you're like, oh,
1: I'll do it later. Will you really though, you know? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like I talk about something all the time called um, habit stacking. So when you're doing something that's already a habit, like you go for your run every day all the time, but you're trying to add in something else that's good, attach it to the good habit that you already do. So let's say, you know, you wanna do some mobility work. Well, you're already going for a run do the mobility work right before the run. And that way that becomes a habit attached to your already ingrained habit. And then, you know, a few weeks, months later, whatever, you can't think of even doing your run without doing your mobility. So it's a good way to sneak a couple things in at the same time. Talking about training in general, we, and
0: I just did a whole episode on, um, on how you shouldn't overly rely on the numbers in your training. There are other ways to, Uh, measure your progress and and Mm -hmm. consider what's appropriate for you. But we do talk about volume a lot in training. Like what kind of volume are you running? When I'm asking you what kind of volume that you're running, what does that mean?
1: Well, the volume is the amount of miles that you're doing. And it could be your daily volume. It could be your weekly volume, your monthly volume, your yearly volume, however you want to break it down. But your volume is the amount of running that you're doing. And when I
0: ask people that sometimes, and I don't know about you, but sometimes when I have conversations about people with people about their running, I'll ask them, you know, how, how much are you running right now? Like how many times per week, you know, how long are your Mm -hmm. runs? And they'll give me a number. And that's like their long run distance only. They'll say I'm running eight miles and I have to be like in your long run or total in a week, you know, it's always, (laughs) so when, when somebody asks you, like, what are you, what's your current volume? commonly we're asking for how much do you run each week in total. That's
1: right. That's right. Yeah. And you know, you want to have that balance between your long run and the rest of your running. You know, if you're running eight miles for your long run and you're only running, you know, one other time, two miles, that's not a very balanced training schedule. So you want to make sure that your long run volume you know your at long run volume, do we say that? I don't even know if we say that. your weekly volume is balanced by an appropriate long run. Let's talk some more about some
0: racing terms because there's a okay. lot to unpack here, um from you know whether you're trying to get into a race or what happens when you race. super common abbreviation b q.
1: Boston qualifying. Yeah. So if you're looking for your BQ, that is the time you need to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And a course may sometimes describe itself as a BQ
0: course. That typically Mm -hmm. means that the course is eligible. Like you can, you can use that course. If you run a BQ on that course, Boston, the BAA will accept that time as a legitimate qualifying time.
1: Exactly. so many, many, many marathons in the world um, are are certified by the Boston Athletic Association. So if your goal is to run Boston someday and you and you want to earn your spot by running fast enough, make sure your course is has been certified by the Boston Athletic Association as as BQ certified course.
0: Um, big debate among some people. PR or PB. <laughs>
1: Most Americans say PR so that's a personal record and people um you know Canadians will definitely use PB so personal best and other sort of metric come countries tend to use PB a little bit more often. I think Americans always say the acronym PR, but when we talk about it, we tend, we tend to say, oh, my personal best in the marathon is blah, blah, blah. I don't think too many Americans say my personal record is. We say, P, we say PR or personal best, but those are used interchangeably. And I think it depends on what country you're from. That's an interesting conversation. I don't go around saying, "Well, my personal record in right, the distance right. is." Say like, "Oh, <laughs>
0: my PR is." Oh, I you know, or I ran this. <laughs> right, right. Um, Speaking of records, a CR
1: that would be course record. Course so record. that is the best you have run on a personal course, or the best any person has ever run on that particular particular course.
0: So you might see, for example, in a race, if somebody, you know, breaks the tape, wins Mm -hmm. the race, uh, which is another acronym to break the tape means to win the race. Um, They might say, you know, it's, it might be that runner's personal best and a course record, but there are some other acronyms as well, like W-R. You don't see that too often. Well, more so in the past couple of years. Yeah. We've seen a lot of that this year. That is world record world mm-hmm. record if you if you have a world record come talk to me that's very impressive <laughs> <laughs>
1: maybe someday age age record you know you never know right? <Definitely>. AG. What's an AG? Okay. Yeah, that's age group. So, if, um, so let's say you get the best out of whatever age group you're in. And usually those are either divided into decades, so 40s, 50s, 60s. Or if it's for a big race, they'll be every five years, so 45 to 49, something like that. So if you get one AG, that means you are first place in your age group. Two AG would be second place, et cetera. That could be helpful
0: too in larger races when, I mean, if you're running a race that has thousands and thousands of people, it's unlikely you're going to place, you know, in the top 10 in that race. But it's really nice to say, hey, in my age group, this was how I stacked up against runners who were like me.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, if if you another way to look at it as you're aging is there's some calculators online that you can look and see how your age graded performance is. So, let's say you're just, you know, you're 70 years old and you run a 3-hour marathon, which is ridiculous. You would be like so high up in in your age grading that you would probably be better than most elite runners. So that's a really cool way to, you know, still feel super accomplished, even if you're slowing down a little bit as you age.
0: Electric Dinotopia Carnival. Au revoir, gopher. $9 pour over. I'm wearing burgundy. Are these other fretting slang things that we're gonna talk about? No, no, no. These are the names of different gooder sunglasses. And I have to admit, when I first learned about Gooder Sunglasses, the reason I started buying them was because I just loved the names of the different colors. I actually own I'm Wearing Burgundy. Yes, they're burgundy. and I love them so much. And now you can buy your own pair of Gooder Sunglasses and save 15% off with code RUNEXP. That's code R-U-N, exp you can get the wildest most craziest named sunglasses in the world and they're also going to be polarized no slip no bounce super affordable even before that discount so head now to gooder.com that's g-o-o-d-r.com and save 15 percent off your next order with code run exp r-u-n-e-x-p look good run gooder A three-hour marathon for a 70-year-old runner would be (laughs) phenomenal, amazing.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I think it's been done. I don't know what the 70 age group is, but they are getting faster and faster. It's amazing. So these ones you'll see a little bit less unless you're watching um, like a
0: track and field sport or something that's a sanctioned race, an N-R
1: national record did national i get that right record. yeah
0: <laughs> quiz time yeah you know
1: yeah so that would be a national record for your country yep so typically
0: that has to be an event in which you are eligible to run a national record mm-hmm. um or of course is olympic record you can only get yeah. those if you're running in the olympics o
1: t q Ooh, that's a good one. That is Olympic trials qualifier. So, in the United States, um, in in some other countries, but in the U.S., um, there are certain races or there are certain times that you need to hit in order to qualify for the Olympic trials, and then you run that race to see who goes to the Olympics. So, um, for the marathon, there's a lot of you know they've changed the the qualifying times recently, but they will have um, an Olympic trials race, you know, a few months before the Olympics in an Olympic year. So, and you can't just run, you know, an OTQ anytime because it has to be within the Olympic window, which I think it's 18 months. Don't quote me on that, but it has to be in a certain time period before the Olympics to qualify you for, for the trials. So
0: it's a similar process, like, you know, first think about, you know, if you get your BQ, it's that similar process you have to have run that within a certain window to qualify for the next, you know, available race. And the OTQ is—it's a kind of you think about like a sexier, faster version of a BQ. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, much faster. Yeah, for the women. Well, for the women, it's dropped down significantly. It was 245, and now I think it's 236. So it's they—they're trying to shrink the numbers because I think I think something something like 500 women qualified, and you know, a marathon with 500 Olympic qualifying, you know, people is huge. So they're trying to shrink those numbers a little bit. Yeah. I, in Atlanta, when they had
0: the last trials, um, qualifying or the qualifying the trials race, it was he, that field was massive. And it was such yeah. a great celebration of all the people who put in the work to become that fast. Cause that is that those are fast, fast people on that course. But I do know for some runners, they said it running in a field that large was a real challenge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. I mean, all of the rest of us run in in fields that large if we do um, major races, of course, but you know, it's, I don't know. There's some, there's, there's pros and cons either way. Having it a little easier does kind of spur people who are on the line to try to be better. And now the number is so high that most normal people can't even dream of running that fast, but you know what? It's the Olympics. It really should be for the very, very best of the best. So, you know, I, I kind of think it's a good thing that they are, um, paring it down because, you know, in the 10 K they don't allow 500 people, you know, to race the 10 K. So why should they do that in the marathon? You know? Yeah. So speaking of the best of the best, there is lingo around
0: different runners of different abilities. We talk about elite Sub elite, competitive, Mm -hmm. locally competitive, recreational, you know, we say us age groupers. Yeah. There is some actual research that kind of delineates where the line between elite or world class, elite, sub elite, competitive all is. Um, Yeah. But these are, these can be classifications of runners, but we're talking world class. If somebody says they're a world class runner, We're talking about the people who are winning major races.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Winning or top 10, you know, um, know, the same people tend to win a lot of the races over and over again. And, you know, you still can be world class and not win the top, top race, but you're certainly going to crush it nationally. You're certainly going to, you know, kill the the local turkey trot, you know, (laughs) whatever it is. So, yeah, you've got world class, you've got national class. Then I would say you have regional after that. Um, And then you would have local. So, you know, you could be a really good local runner and, you know, win most of the 5Ks or get close to winning most of the 5Ks. But then when you do something that has a little more national or regional appeal, you wouldn't quite, you know, get on top of the podium. But, you know, you could be in the top 5%, 10%. And then as the competition gets stiffer and stiffer, you'd find yourself a, a little farther back of the pack. But yeah, so I, I've seen some of the, um, qualifications, some of that stuff too. I don't know exactly where the line is, but, um, I think, you know, seeing where you would stack up with some of these really, really, um, big, you know, international or national races kind of would tell you the story. And when races put together an
0: elite field, that is something mm-hmm. very specific, and they typically get a special bib, and they may or may not, you know, get their expenses paid for. Or have a in larger mm-hmm. races, they get an appearance fee. They're eligible for prize money. Um, right. What What is an elite field in a race?
1: Well, the elites are running a different race than the rest of us. So, if we're talking about the marathon, um, they get to start out at the beginning of the field, sometimes they start out in a separate wave, and then the masses will come behind them. But the important thing is that they really are running a different race, even though it's on the same course on the same day, you know, a few minutes earlier. And we saw this play out in um, the Boston Marathon in 2018. So uh, if you remember that, that was horrible, horrible conditions. It was like, 35 degrees and raining and so what happened was a lot of the elite field had to drop out and some of the non-elites who were started behind them actually had some faster finishing times than the top 10 elites and there was a lot of discussion like well who should win the prize money you know so and so got a better time than you know so and so elite so should that person be 10th place who gets the prize money And actually, you have to consider that the elites are running against each other. Yes, time, of course, is important, but it's who crosses the finish line first in the elite race that wins the big prize or gets the place. So if you're not classified as an elite, you cannot win the race. It's just a different race. Um, They might give you a special award if that actually happens, but they are really running a different race.
0: Yeah, that is your finishing time. If you don't place, like cross the finish line in the right order, your finishing time doesn't count in terms of placing in the race or prize money. Right, exactly. Which exactly. I can under that. Sound. I mean, I understand the controversy. Look, if I ran fast enough to, you know, be eligible to have one prize money in a major race and I didn't because I wasn't in the elite field. I have some feelings.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, what they ended up doing, I actually had an athlete that I coached that did do that. She was absolutely amazing. And what they did is they gave double prize money. So everybody got their recognition. So it worked out. The BAA did everybody right, but um, you know, they've got to they've got to make these rules for a reason because the elites are really having a lot of tactics they're not just running as fast as possibly can they're trying to you know be strategic about it so they might run slower on purpose for a certain reason and it's not just for time it's they are competing against each other uh there if you watch track track and field
0: or marathons you might hear commentators use certain phrases like Mm -hmm. you know turning the screws or squeezing the pace or breakaway or these different things that are tactic-related that you were going to see in an elite field, unlike us who are just like, I'm just here to run as fast as I possibly can. I have no tactic other than
1: that. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we're surging or things like that. So, you know, what they'll do is they'll all group together for a long time and they call it sit and kick, you know, so they'll sit for a long time and it looks like they're jogging. And then whoever has the fastest kick is going to win the race because they'll just take off. So it's, um, it's very tactical. We have our own tactics, but they're all internal. You know, they're all for ourselves. We're not really, most of us at least are not really competing against anybody else. One that I, I can be helpful, especially if you're in a race
0: where you're in a group and you're trying to hang out with the group and stay in that group is not getting gapped or covering the gap if you do mm-hmm. and or falling off the back of the pack. And you, again, will probably hear this most likely in the context of watching that elite race play out. But as a as a recreational runner, this is helpful for me because sometimes if you can get back with the group, that's a really helpful way to stay in the race. Do you want to talk a bit more about what I mean when I say that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, there's a psychological component to this because when you feel like you're all alone, you know, everything feels harder. We are social animals and when we are in a group and we feel like we're working together, we actually perform better. This is like science and it sounds funny, but it's totally true. When we when we feel like we're a part of something, we do better. But the other really practical part of it is simply physics. So wind resistance, when you're by yourself, even if there's zero wind, just you running down the road is going to create um, you know, a drag on you and will slow you down as much as 10, 20, 30 seconds per mile, depending on how much the wind is. So if you have somebody in front of you and you're drafting behind them, meaning you are in their wake, just like you're behind them in a speedboat, um, they're protecting you from the wind and the, the amount of slowdown from the wind will be negligible or, or significantly less. It is a real, real thing, especially if it is a headwind. But even if there's no wind at all, just your body moving through the air creates resistance. So you want to stay in the pack. You don't want to be in between packs. You don't want to be in no man's land if you can help it because your job is going to be a lot harder if you're by yourself. And yeah, that's the, it can feel
0: sometimes like when you're between groups, it literally feels like you're all alone, even with mm-hmm. your with, you know, kind of, there might be other people around you once you've lost your group, it's like, oh gosh. And there is a huge psychological, you know, deficit to having lost contact with your group.
1: Yeah, yeah, especially if it's a pace group. You know, if you're running with a pace group, let's say you're shooting for, you know, I don't know, a 4-hour marathon and and you're with the 4-hour group, you know, you got the pace setter with the little uh flag waving in the air and you see them get farther and farther away. It can be just soul crushing, you know. You just feel like, "Oh my gosh, I I will never catch up." And sometimes you do and sometimes you don't, but yeah, when you feel like your are Time is being, you know, slipping away from you. That can be really, really hard. So, it's it's easier to stay with the group than catch up to a group for sure. I will also
0: say, as a personal story, if you are using the strategy where your goal is to um, hunt down a pace group that's in front of you, <laughs> you have to make sure that group exists before you <laughs> go hunting for them. In my fall, in my fall marathon last year, I I was like, okay, I'm going to start really conservatively. I'm going to go, I'm going to like, my goal is to hunt down the pace group in front of me and hang out and hopefully pass them, you know, and have a strong finish. There was no pace group at my at the time I was hunting for. Oh no! So I kept like squeezing the pace and I'm like I got this, I got this, I'm on track. Where are they? Where are they? Where are they? <laughs> we came to a big long out and back in the race, and you, when you start to see the peep, the front runners come back at you, and they looked like, and I saw, okay, there are the front runners. Okay, there's the next group. Where's my pace group and they just Oh no. There wasn't one. I looked in the race afterwards and I had had to I should have double checked my pace group, they didn't have a pace group for the time I was hunting for. So, um, that (laughs) if you are going to go hunting for a group, make sure they're real.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. We could do a whole thing on pace groups too, but also make sure, you know, the strategy of your pace group, because some people pace, I've paced a lot of races before and some people pace like they are a visual representation of the clock. So you always know that, you know, if it's nine minute per mile pace, that's what I'm doing no matter what the terrain, no matter what the weather, I'm doing nine minute per mile pace. Or there's other pacers that pace it on effort and pace it like you actually should run a, a race. And so you got to talk to those pace groups ahead of time and ask the leaders what the strategy is first. Yes. And if, if you if your pacer says, well, my goal is we'll start
0: conservative and we're going to try to negative split. That means Mm -hmm. they're going to try to run the first half a little bit slower and the second half a little bit faster to end Mm -hmm. up with your goal finish time.
1: Absolutely. That's a good pace leader. I like those leaders. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And that's hard to do. It's hard to negative split anything, Mm -hmm. even if you're not running at your all-out effort because pacers, the people who volunteer or are hired by races to lead these very specific groups across the finish line at the goal times for that pace group – You know, they're not racing. They are running this race at an effort that is not their quote unquote best effort. They have to have PRs that are much faster than their pace groups that they're leading. But it's really hard to pace a race, even if it's
1: not your an all out effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. You should have, that's another good question for your pace group leader is what is your PR or PB at this race? If they say that it's just like a minute faster than whatever they are pacing, be that's a red flag. You want somebody much, much stronger. And, but you are going to know that if they screw up their pacing, they are strong enough to make it up in the difference, you know, it at the end where you may not be able to do that. So you want somebody strong but you want somebody smart and and here's a term for you Elizabeth you don't want somebody who says they're going to put time in the bank.
0: <laughs> yeah. Cuz no, you know what no, that means.
1: <laughs> no banking time, we're not going to put time
0: in the bank. We're not going to try to make anything up in the first half, that is a big red flag. That is when you intentionally try to run f- ahead of your goal pace, faster than goal pace at the beginning, so mm-hmm. that when you inevitably slow down, which you will if you're running too fast at the beginning, you won't lose too much time. And this this is like a strategy that sabotages itself.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, that works in races 400 meters and less. And that's it. <laughs> or races maybe that have, I don't know, a big downhill at the beginning and then straight uphill at the end. Maybe then it would work. But other than that, it's, it's a bad idea. Bad.
0: Yes, always. And if you're saying, well, I, I have to bank time at the beginning because I always hit the wall, which we'll talk about in a second, I always hit the wall <sighs> towards the end of my race. I'm like, maybe you're hitting the wall because you're trying to bank time.
1: <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: All right, hitting the wall, bonking. It's two, two phrases that are describing the same thing.
1: Yes, they're the same thing. So the bonk is when it's usually in a marathon, it'll happen in the half two, but it's the point where you basically just slow down and you cannot, you can no longer um, keep up your pace that you had been keeping the whole time. And the reason that this happens is almost always because of improper fueling. It does happen if you're undertrained, if your muscles just simply aren't strong enough for the distance, but it's mostly because of fueling mistakes um and obviously going out too fast if you if you use all your fuel way too fast you're going to bonk but what that really is is you're using all your fuel so it's it's a fueling mistake that's compounded by by a racing strategy mistake um and it will happen if you're you know new never done this before and you're just um you're just not prepared for the distance it certainly will happen, but good training and good feeling along with good strategy. And you don't have to bonk.
0: And it, it's also called hitting the wall because it sometimes feel like you've run into right. a brick wall. Yes. <laughs> Mile yes, 18, exactly. 20, 22 of your marathon. Although, yes, you can hit the wall in in a half marathon too. That absolutely sure. can't happen because a half marathon is long enough where you do require fueling for that race and you can mm-hmm. run out of fuel too early.
1: Yes, for sure. For sure. And you know, there's lots of things that feel like a brick wall <laughs> that aren't necessarily the true bonk. Um, if you ever, I did uh, one of those races out West that just, you basically are falling off a mountain and then, you know, it's straight, uh, it's flat for a little while. And when you run fast down, down long downhill stretches, as soon as you hit flat it will feel like a brick wall because your quads are completely trashed. Um, so that flat really feels like uphill, even though it's not. So I wouldn't say that's the technical definition, but it definitely, that's the other time where I felt like a brick wall was hitting me for sure. Like,
0: where did my gravity <laughs> assist go? Oh my gosh, exactly. I have to go on flats? No. I know.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. It still was a good race, but wow. Wow. Downhill is not as easy as you might think.
0: Two, actually, I, there are so many race things to explore. I just keep thinking we, sh- we should talk about this, talk about that. Um, mm-hmm. We'll talk about seeding and corrals in just a second. But since you brought mm-hmm. up downhill, in the context of running, there are things we talk about like da- elevation gain and loss and then the mm-hmm. net gain and loss. So if you say this course is net
1: downhill,
0: mm-hmm. what does that mean?
1: Okay. So a net downhill means if you add up all the uphill and add up all the downhill, a net downhill would mean that that number is higher. So there's more downhill than uphill, but it doesn't mean that it's all downhill. That means that there is going to be some uphills too. They're likely to have uphills too. So it's not just how much downhill it is. It just means there's more downhill than uphill. An elevation gain
0: and loss is simply the, how much elevation, if you, you know, run up a a hill that's a hundred feet of gain, then you've gained a hundred feet. Same lost a hundred feet. Yeah. Right. That net downhill thing, triple check your course elevation maps before you commit Mm -hmm. money to a race. If you're concerned about elevation gain, cause I have seen plenty of races that advertise themselves as net downhill, but they actually have a fairly large amount of gain along with that loss.
1: Yeah, you should. Yeah, definitely want to check out the course and see what you're in for. There's an awesome website called Find My Marathon, and they have almost all the races, not just the major ones. They have lots and lots of races, especially in the U.S., um lots of Canadian races too. And they'll have the elevation profile, and you'll be able to check out how much gain and loss there is. So, you know, it's super, super important. To like um, another famous race that is um, you know, considered a rolling or mostly downhill race is CIM. And that's considered a fast course. The, the California International Marathon is held in December, but people aren't prepared for how much uphill there is. It's rolling. So yes, it might overall be a fast course, but if you don't train for the uphill too, you're going to be in for a disappointment. And
0: similarly, that's a good one too. Boston is technically a net downhill course. Yes, people think about Boston as being relatively hilly, it, it, it's just where those hills are, there's a lot of downhill on that course.
1: Yeah, so Boston is not considered a world record course because it has so much downhill, and so you know even though some super fast times have been recorded on the Boston Marathon course, they're never going to be considered a world record. Um, so yes, so the first basically 13 miles of Boston are uh, is is a downhill, a mostly downhill course, and you're full of adrenaline, you're having fun, you're at the Boston Marathon, it's so amazing. And if you run that too fast, you trash your quads. And then when you hit the Newton Hills, which are in the middle of the race, it, again, it feels like the brick wall. And then of course, everybody talks about heartbreak hill. And, um, but then after that, there is quite a bit of downhill, but if you have trashed your quads and you get to the top of heartbreak, it's still gonna be a painful run home, you know. So Boston is a great course, but I would not say it's particularly easy, even though it's net downhill.
0: We talked a bit about, you know, elites starting in front of the the masses, talk about waves or corrals. Sometimes mm-hmm. when, you know, we sign up for a race, people are a little bit like, how how did I get into this specific section? Like, what does this mean if I'm in Corral B, Wave 5? Mm-hmm. How does that work? How do races determine where people should start in races that um, seed their runners? And then what does it mean if you are at a race that asks you to self-seed?
1: Okay. So, in order to get all of these people on the race course at the same time, what they want to do is put the faster runners up front because that'll spread everybody out. And so the faster runners don't have to constantly pass the slower runners. So pretty much everybody is moving in, in a straight line and it gradually gets more and more spread out as the race goes. So in general, they want to have the fastest runners up front and what they'll do is Put any everybody into sections or corrals. And sometimes they start at different times and they'll call those waves. And so If you're, um, you know, for bigger races, so we've talked about Boston, they're going to have what your qualifying time is ahead of time. You have to submit that. It has to be certified that that's what you really ran. And so they'll know what everybody is capable of doing, and they'll organize you with the fastest people up front in the first corrals, the first waves, and the slower people will be in the later waves. Um, If you're asked to do that on your own or self-seed, you have to tell them, hey, I can run x for the marathon and then they will either they'll do it ahead of time and put you in order or you'll just go ahead and kind of line up and you know if you think you're the fastest runner get to the front please and if you think you're middle of the pack stay in the middle and if you're on a fun run and you got the stroller then you know that should be in the back and the
0: races themselves, we have shoots, C H U T E shoots. So you have, <laughs> yeah, you know, when you line yourself up, um, and then let's say everybody, you know, to the start line or get in, get in the starting shoot. Yeah, that's just that's just kind of like the the corralled off area where only runners are allowed, and it's be- behind the start line.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's, it's walled off by fences so that only runners can go. We're not going to have, you know, husbands and wives and kids in there. And then you'll also have a finishing shoot at the end at some of the major races too. And that's so they can get everybody through, put your medal around your neck, uh, you know, give you a blanket if you're cold, get some snacks in you. Sometimes they'll have a beer or whatever it is and get you all the way through um, to wherever you can to disperse and, and go celebrate.
0: This is this is some other lingo and slang. Um, if you bandit a race, what does it mean oh. to bandit a race?
1: This is something that was really done a lot at the beginning of, um, you know, modern marathon history when it wasn't such a big deal. People would just kind of jump into races w- without officially signing up, without actually getting a bib, um, you know. Some of the earliest runners, so Bobby Gibbs was the first uh, woman to run the Boston Marathon, and she was technically a bandit because she didn't get a bib. She just ran it. Um, Catherine Switzer actually did sign up for the Boston Marathon. She used her first initial so they couldn't tell that she was female, And she ran the race. So she was not a bandit. Um, But people have done this more recently um, to um, get into races that they either haven't qualified for or don't want to pay for. So, um, you know, some people even just trading bibs, like let's say I want to run this race, I sign up for it and I get sick or injured and I sell my bib, you know, somebody else could take that bib. These are all major no-no's. Um, if you're going to run a race um especially one that has a time qualification, you got to earn it. And otherwise you're taking away a spot from somebody else. And
0: sometimes people will say, you know, I just want my friend to pace me. They're not going to run the whole thing. Therefore they shouldn't, you know, have to sign up for the race. Technically that's banditing. And actually you're not allowed to do that if you're trying mm-hmm. to win prize money, <laughs> it's against the yes. rules. Yes.
1: Yes. Prize money is a whole different ballgame. They have all sorts of different rules. You know, you might not be allowed to wear headphones if you are trying to get um, prize money. So if you think you're capable of winning a prize, absolutely make sure that you know what the elite rules are because they are different than normal rules.
0: Similar, something you don't really see a lot until we talk about the context of elite running and rarely in marathons If you're a rabbit, if I've been hired as a rabbit for a race, what does
1: that mean? So they do have them in marathons. Um, you know, a rabbit is is a pace setter, basically. So the Chicago Marathon is famous for having rabbits. Um, not all the major races do have them, but Chicago does. They got rid of them for a while, but then they brought them back because it makes the race more exciting. You know how we were talking earlier about sitting and kicking? You know, a marathon is a really long race, and so you don't want to run as fast as possible. You want to tire out your competitors and then kick to the finish if you can. So. So um, that is good race strategy, but it's very boring for the spectators. We don't want to see these people jogging. We want to see them running as hard as possible. So when you get a rabbit in the race, they are going to get out in front. They're going to block the wind. They are paid to run certain splits or certain times per mile um, that um, the other runners behind them are hoping to achieve. So a lot of um, races that have rabbits are done for... certain records. So let's say someone's trying to break the American record. Um, Kira D'Amato broke the American record at the Houston Marathon, and she did that with the help of a male pace setter. So he ran with her. He ran in front of her. Actually, she might have had two, but i I know of the one um, and he he was you know basically being the visual representation of the clock for her, and she could duck behind him and draft off him and set the pace to make sure that she got the record. so with races that are not about the world record, they're just they're there to keep it honest to um because. Pacing yourself is mentally challenging. You know, you have to be thinking about the effort all the time. And whenever you're using tons of brain power, the brain's favorite fuel is glycogen, the same as your muscles. So you want all of the fuel going to your muscles. You don't want to be thinking about anything if you don't have to. So a pace setter really takes that load off your shoulders.
0: And sometimes you might see, especially if you're walking, watching a race that takes place on the track, mm-hmm. and if you're confused about watching. Why is the person who's in front? Why did they just step off the track? Why did they just leave mm-hmm. the race? They're the rabbit. They were never supposed to finish the race.
1: Yes, yes. And you'll see somebody typically um, rabbit a race that is better at a shorter distance. So if it's an 800-meter race, which is two laps around the track, you'll often see somebody who's a 400-meter specialist be the rabbit, and they will run the 400 meters, which is obviously going to be a faster pace than whoever can run 800 meters. They'll run that super fast 400-meter pace with the 800-meter folks behind them and then step off right before the last lap. And that's intentional. The first couple, when I first started watching track,
0: because I came to the sport later in life, uh, it took me a a couple of races to realize that that was intentional. And these front runners weren't just like dropping out right, left and center. I was like, Oh, I get there's a
1: strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. They are being paid to do that for sure.
0: Speaking of the track, let's talk about more, some equipment lingo that people might have heard or be confused about. Um, I mentioned, flats earlier in the context of a flat Mm -hmm. section of a course, but flats are also a type of shoe.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you're running on the track, um, you are either, well, the elites are either going to be in flats or they're going to be in spikes. So the shorter races, you're going to have little spiky things on the bottom of your shoe. And that's to give you better grip on the track, um, to hopefully help you go faster. So a lot of new technology has gone into, um, track shoes lately, and there's super spikes out there, um, to make the, to help the runners go faster. But for most runners that are going a little bit longer distances, which is probably most of your audience, um, if you're running on the track and you really want your best uh, performance possible, you want to have the lightest shoe possible. So as minimal as possible so that your foot is not heavy. So we know from physics, any weight at the end of a lever is going to feel heavier. So we want that to be as light as possible. Um, But with a lot of the new foam shoes out there, they're already pretty light, even though they're kind of big and squishy. Um, The other thing is when you're running on the track, especially if you're doing short repeats or short um, intervals. The, the best form that you can have you're going to be on your toes or at least your midfoot you're not going to need a lot of protection on your heel if you're truly running in a sprint style fashion for your workout or for your race and so you really don't need a lot of protection um, with a big heavy tempo shoe or marathon shoe you want something as light as possible so it doesn't slow you down and this is definitely an ultra
0: specialized shoe. I think probably for 95% of listeners here, no, you don't need to buy a pair of these. <laughs> of, no, no. Of no, no Track specific no. shoes. You don't need spikes, you don't need flats. Your regular shoes are just fine.
1: Yes, yes. Your regular shoes are just fine. Although, you know, it's good to have a quiver of shoes, you know, that you rotate. You don't want to just wear a p- one pair of shoes until they're dead. You want to have um, some rotation. They could be the exact same shoe, but your shoe, the foam does need to rest so it has the same springiness over and over again. Um, and it's fun to wear new shoes. Certainly that's part of it. But, um, you know, you it, there's been some evidence that shows that you're less injury prone if you rotate your shoes. So, you know, if you have different kinds of shoes for different runs, that's a great idea because the little muscles in your feet will work and respond differently to the different surfaces that, that you put your, your feet in. So you want to mix that up. So, um, to help prevent some of those overuse injuries. If somebody asks you what's in your rotation right now,
0: they're asking you what kinds of shoes you're currently wearing, you know, in your training week.
1: Right. Or what your playlist is, you yeah. know, one or the other. <laughs> Rotation. Um, a singlet. What's a singlet? <laughs> a singlet is is a tank top. It's your, it's your racing top. So singlet is sort of, I, I got to say it's like a British term, I think. I'm not sure it's origin, but if people are talking about a singlet, it's a tank top that you're wearing on race day. Yeah.
0: And if you ran in school, you had, you know, you had gear, you had your race singlet that had your school name on it. Or, right. you know, if you run it with a club that has gear, that's you have your race day singlet.
1: Yep. You have, you have your singlet and that's part of your kit, which is yeah. your whole outfit. Yeah. Your whole kit, um, which may or may not include splits, If you're
0: split shorts, if you're a guy or maybe (laughs) half tights, if it's a little bit chilly out, there are all these like weird things. Like they're just, why can't we just call them shorts? Like short shorts long yeah. shorts, tight shorts.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it's, you got to differentiate because I, I love a good split short. So those are the ones that aren't super, super tight. Um, the ones, sometimes they call them a tulip cause they, they're sort of rounded. They have a little split on the side and, um, usually they have little built-in underwear, which is nice. So you don't have to worry about that extra layer getting sweaty or chafy or anything like that. And, you know, split shorts don't really ride up like, like the tight shorts do. So they, they stay where they are, where you put them which is nice. So yeah. I I love a good split short. Yeah. And they're they're let, looser material,
0: right? They shouldn't mm-hmm. be super tight, right? So if you're no. wearing split shorts and they're like, you know, you know, your thighs are like busting out of them, those are not the right size or style for you.
1: Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I also like um yeah, more of a compression short too, especially if they have pockets because that's where you can stuff your gels, your fuel, maybe even a little water bottle. So, I mean, I, li- I like all sorts of um, shorts. So compression has a little squeeze to them. And um, if they're the right length, they'll stay put when you're running.
0: Yeah, and this is your traditional spandex type short. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, the longer they get, the more they turn into pants <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or tights. Yes, <Yeah>, so <laughs> or we call them in running, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, so let's talk about some acronyms to, to um, finish up that we may not have covered so far. You don't hear these um, as often, but when you're like, what does that even mean? L-S-D.
1: Not the drug. What do we say (laughs) when we're talking
0: about L-S-D? That
1: is long, slow distance. So you need a lot of those in your marathon training. Not all of your long runs should be L-S-D, but quite a few of them for sure. What about D-N-F? Did not finish. Aw. Yeah, everybody should have a DNF story. You know, they're sad to go through, but they make you a better, stronger runner. I've got one, you know, they say you're not a real runner until you have a DNF and a DNS. Was that your next one? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, so DNS. um, DNS, did not start. So that's when you sign up for a race and you just can't get to the the starting line for some reason. You're sick or injured or whatever it is. What about an FKT? Fastest known time. So that is something um, mostly on trail running that they do. So, you know, the FKT on, you know, the Grand Canyon, rim to rim to rim or something like that. So people go out and chase these um, and, you know, it's big in the ultra world for sure. Yeah. I mean,
0: fastest known time. And those are, there's a little... Because you can make anything an FKT if you decide that you're the fastest person who's done it. Like I could run an FKT from my town to the next technically, although they tend to be (laughs) routes that are a little bit well-known or very challenging, like you said, especially in the ultra world.
1: Yeah. I'm going to run an FKT like up my stairs today, I think.
0: (laughs) All right. The last one, it's not really an acronym, but I feel like it's a super common. I mean, it technically is. It stands for something vo2 max we'll finish up mm. on, a, on a hard one here um okay
1: what that, is it why yeah. do
0: we why what when do runners need to know this and when is this not important
1: okay so the o2 part i'll start in the middle it stands for oxygen um and max is maximum and the V, I would say, for is volume, or oh, yeah, it's volume. So your VO two max is the is the maximum amount of oxygen that you can utilize while exercising. So it's. Um, it can, it can tell how fast you're capable of running or it can be used as a measurement of your fitness. And people also use it to describe a workout that actually stresses that energy system. So it doesn't always correlate. There's all sorts of stories of super high-end elite runners that have these massive numbers, these super high VO2 max, and they are not the fastest in the world at whatever it is. So it doesn't correlate 100% but it's basically how much oxygen that you can use which you know helps fuel the fire helps helps the energy power your muscles and that's i mean so vo2 max um
0: it's something that some of our wearables will say hey this is your vo2 max um and then i i've had runners Trained specifically to try to increase what their watch VO2 max says it is and get really concerned when their watch VO2 max changes.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super problematic. So the only way you can um, accurately test your VO2 max is in a laboratory. So they'll put you on a treadmill and they will put um, like an oxygen mask on your mouth and they will actually measure how much oxygen is going in and out of your lungs and, you know, it, it, with relation to how fast you're going on the treadmill. And they'll put it in their fancy, you know, computer and pop out a number. So that's the only way to truly measure your VO2 max. What your watch is doing, it's not measuring your oxygen. There's no way for it to like suck oxygen out of your lungs. It's measuring how fast you're going and it's measuring your heartbeat. And that's really all it's measuring. Yeah, it'll sort of do cadence and some other things, but Um, so it's not, it's not giving you a real number. It's estimating how hard you're working versus how fast you're going. But the thing is with your, your magic number that your watch says, you don't want to always be going up and up and up and up and up. You need to be able to absorb your training and you need to run slower at times. So there are times where you really need that number to go down because something is wrong. If you are actually going up and up and up and up and up, you're about to fall off a cliff. You know, (laughs) you know, you really do need to take time, you know, especially after a race or a a really big run, you need to detrain a little bit. You need that number to come down. And just because you're choosing to run easy, Your watch doesn't know that you're doing that. Your watch thinks you're running race pace all the time. And if you go out and have a couple of easy days, it's going to say you're being unproductive. And, you know, I think that's a little judgy, Garmin. You know, like I really don't need you to hear that. I'm supposed, you know, being unproductive is actually productive when it comes to your overall training. So be careful with those numbers. Number one, they're not accurate. And number two, they're not always saying what you think they're saying.
0: And especially in the summer, I see this. This is a this is a big panic about in the middle of the summer. I had a bunch of people reach out and say, why is my VO2 max going down? And I said, because it's summer and you're running slower as you should be because it's hot and explained right. just what you <clears throat> did. It's guesstimating based on a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, You, you need to slow down in the summer to accommodate running in the heat. Some places, extreme heat and very high humidity. If you're just barrel through all the time, wouldn't be good for your training. Might that VO two max number rise? Sure. That's not what we're going for here. We're trying to become faster runners, not game the VO two max algorithm on your watch. Exactly. Exactly. Claire, thank you so much for being here and sharing some of your amazing wisdom with us. Um, it's always fun to talk about this week. Sometimes when you're steeped in the language of running, you forget that it really can feel like another language sometimes. And I'm sure that we even threw out a couple of terms where people were like, wait, can you wait? Define that though. I don't understand <laughs> what that is either. Um, but you put out some absolutely phenomenal educational posts on Instagram that I just absolutely love. So if anybody needs more or wants to learn more about running, tell us how we can follow you and listen to your new podcast and pre-order your book if it's when it becomes available.
1: Yeah. Well, I am the planted runner everywhere. So at the planted runner on Instagram, the book is the planted runner. You can find it. Um, I don't know if it's available at, you can actually pre-order it, but you definitely can find it already. It's up on Amazon and you know, Barnes and Nobles everywhere. Um, and, um, yeah, the podcast is called the planted runner. So yeah, this was totally fun. I'm glad I passed your quiz. I was afraid you were going to ask me something and be like, I don't know what that is, (laughs) but thankfully I, thankfully I think I got a hundred percent there. I I hope (laughs) I was trying to stick more to
0: like common (laughs) slang and lingo and terminology, because there are some concepts that are, have been their own podcast episodes so if you're like what do you mean by aerobic like that's a podcast episode that is a whole yes. episode probably deserves a, deserves a whole series of episodes but this is more of like the quick definition you know now you know what an fkt is right
1: yeah it's perfect super fun loved it
0: <laughs> thank you so much claire i cannot wait for round three which i know will be coming soon
1: absolutely i always love talking with you elizabeth thanks so much